Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast, where every week we do a little something to deprogram ourselves, bring some more love, freedom, liberation into the mind, body, and spirit. And this week is a double header with two artists from the Sensing Woman show that's coming up next week in New York. But before I tell you a little bit about them, I wanted to tell you that I feel like an absolute kid in Christmas morning because Forbes did a piece on the show today. The interviewer asked me some really good questions about why we're doing the show and how the idea for the show came about. You know, the show came about because it has been, for me, a challenging season to be female. I have heard people say that we should be thankful for things like Me Too and the Dobbs decision because they show the misogynistic underbelly of our culture. That's true in some sense. You have to know what you're dealing with if you're going to continue to uplift and grow. And I've also been seeing some very strong voices who are telling new stories about female embodiment and pulling us to more freedom and joy. So I wanted to amplify and point to those voices. And of course, artists, as I talk about often, are people who sense what is arising in the undercurrent of cultural consciousness. So that's what we asked in this event. What are artists, what are speakers seeing in women's embodiment now, showcasing their work and doing it with powerful female leaders in many different domains. And then of course, because we're embodied beings, layering it with poetry and music and connection kind of things. And in the way the arc of things works out, the first day is mind. You know, it's very much about media representation and body activism and doctors and policy and strategy. And then we drop into the heart of storytelling and connection on the next day. And then we go further and further into our sexuality and sensuality. And on the last day, there's eco-spirituality, plant medicine, earth and we we have an evening event that sort of brings that home with breast healing and sort of a silky vixeny uh, gathering with activist and rap priestess lizzie jeff who you might have heard on the show before the opening night is with v you probably know her as the founder of v day uh, the author of the vagina monologues 25 years ago really the first time that women were invited onto a stage to talk about this relationship and the thinking and the role that their heretofore undiscussed and hidden parts had in their lives. And it revealed a lot of fear and violence and medical issues and other things, as well as a great amount of pleasure. She asked people questions like, if your vagina had an outfit, what would it be? And if your vagina could talk, what would it say? You know, and then, of course, people told incredible personal stories and it's played in over 180 countries. It's won Tonys and OBs and many other awards. So she's remarkable. And like all of us, she's been on her own journey that has taken her into doing activist work in violence against women during wartime in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the establishment of the City of Joy, and then deeper and deeper into nature and into the earth as nature and, and as the mother. So she's opening on Tuesday night, the 27th, in four days. Ah, I really hope that uh, you will join me. After you hear some of the artists today, you know, you might want to come online and look at their work. Some of their works are for sale uh, at sensingwoman.org. And you can join us on the simulcast. Tickets are also available there. 
we have a donation request of $50 for the entire week of programming. So all of that will go to support reproductive rights and reproductive freedom and algorithmic bias and things like that. Uh, So without much more commentary from me, thank you, Forbes. Thank you to everybody who's been involved in the show, including these two artists who we're speaking with today. Diana Schmerz uh, is the first one, and she is a painter, um, but she also does this really interesting cut work, like CNC laser cutting of papers that are then also painted and overlaid on other images. And those laser cuts, those texts, often have the words of social agreements, contracts on them, and they create a really interesting backdrop for the imagery that she's making out of it. So you'll hear more about her. She has some very teachable moments. Well, she is a teacher, but things like teaching is prevention and therapy is cleanup. There are comments like that that you know dropped into her interview that just seems so wise in addition to her passion for justice and clean and uplifting agreements for all people in the culture. So Diana Schmerz, and then we have a transition to Faye Koo, and Faye explores identity, uh, her girlhood, womanhood, how things changed throughout the course of her life, and really how we're all of our ages at once in some ways. So enjoy these conversations today, engage if you can with the show. If you'd like to find me and have a conversation around these, I'm at the.rose.woman on Instagram. Uh, otherwise, you can reach me at rosewoman.com and you know come and find us. All right, enjoy. Since nobody else can see your video, I'm looking at you and there are all these what look like tiny paintings behind you. What are those? They're book covers. I'm doing a bunch of painting about all these banned books and the education bans, like the Stop Woke Act in Florida. It's literally stop the wrongs against our kids and employees. So things like anti-discrimination training is illegal because it goes against some people's belief systems. It's just, it's fascist. It's really terrible. I'm an educator also. You know, I teach high school art, so I'm researching all these education bans. They're going across all the states where they're not allowing you to talk about sexual orientation or gender, gender identity. And also like some of them, like this is a beautiful one, beautiful, quote unquote, (laughs) being sarcastic Um, in Texas. They're making you can't teach anything but that all people like no matter what race um, or gender you are or you know that you have equal opportunity no matter what and if you teach anything but that then you're going against these laws it's disturbing so i'm trying to make artwork to like an activist it, i mean it's so a blatantly an outright lie right and the, the the one in texas is the 1836 project which is named after the 1619 project it's in it's like against deliberately the 1619 project and so they named it the 1836 project because it's the texas uh constitution the year it was written and you're supposed to teach according to the texas constitution which says you no one no governance or person can abolish slavery ever and it's all white men no females um or non-binary people 
and it's it's disturbing and fascist and i don't know how it's sweeping across our country this way the work that i have in the show is very different from what i'm doing now i just feel like i have to make this work because it upsets me so much and i need to get it out <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a piece of like, you're, you're walking a fine line between education and art therapy, right? Like you give people an opportunity to express and then uh, in the in the interpretation of like what you're reading and what it feels like to answer a question through visuals, I mean, it does tap into the limbic brain, like the part of the brain that processes information pre-verbally. And it has a different stream of light, a different stream of information for the for the child, right? Or for any person. Yeah. I actually worked as an art therapist for two years. I started out thinking I wanted to be a therapist, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I actually student taught with um, Alexi Rush Brock, who you interviewed. Wow. Yeah, she's awesome. I've known her for years and years. And uh, when I, uh, so I, I got my teaching certification when I was working as a therapist so I could work in a school for at-risk children and have sort of more like connection with them because the programs I was working in, you know, healthcare is so terrible in this country. They would have something for six weeks and then that was it. And, you know, people need long-term therapy. And then when I was student teaching, I was like, oh, my God, I felt like I was one with my nature. And I just like love teaching so much. And in my mind, teaching is preventative, whereas therapy, you're trying to fix things that already happened. And I think therapy is great, but I prefer trying to prevent things. That, that's something that I'm really interested in. And I do. I think that the thing about art, the reason why it really works in therapy is because we're always taught what we should admit when we're talking, you know, right away, as soon as you're like two years old, <laughs> you start talking and don't say this, don't say that. But when you draw, people don't know how to admit things, which is really very interesting. And I mean, I do definitely think that the artwork in the classroom is therapy for kids. I'm constantly teaching them patience, but it is very different than being a therapist because I'm a mandated reporter. So if they show me something, they know. I tell them right away because their imagery can be very like uh, personal that, so that they know that I have to say something to someone if I see something very private. Like violent things? Sometimes violent. Or abuse indicators? Yeah, abuse for sure. Sometimes a student will say something about wanting to cut. I remember like... I'm not going to say years or anything like that, because who knows like what student would ever hear anything. But I've seen students make imagery of like dismembered body parts kind of thing. And I have to bring that to guidance because I mean, most of the time, I really feel like these kids that do this, they want help. And so they show me this imagery, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and I help find them the right person. Like, I can't help them with the private stuff because of the rules, but I lead them to the right place. And then I give them the tools, like the skills to make the artwork and keep doing what they want to do and to express themselves. Yeah, because I mean, even something even something like dismembered limbs could be just a sense of lack of integration in the self. It doesn't have to actually be something gory. It could be like, I just can't feel my legs, you know, so there's right. there's all kinds of things that are, what is it? What is it saying? What's the interpretation of it? And and making sure that they're protected, but uh, and helped and assisted, but not jumping to conclusions to pathologize it is is also a fine line. So, 
I mean, I, I think you're, you, 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 there's some very quotable things in what you just said, like teaching is preventative and therapy is cleanup, or we're taught to edit ourselves from the time that we learn to speak. These are very powerful underlying ideas, and they fit right in with, the, with where you opened on these education bands. I mean, I find the whole thing is like my heart is a little bit racing. I'm getting a little bit excited of this idea of this sort of tender relationship between a committed educator being present with their individual students uh, without an agenda, like just listening to them and being with them and not having it sit in this politicized agenda. You know, much like the women's body issue stuff, the reproductive uh, freedom issues. It's like that's a very tender conversation between a physician, uh, a woman, her family. Like that's really a very intimate situation. I don't. I don't want the government involved in that. Nor do I really want them involved in the conversation the art teacher is happening with her kid. I'll tell you. Also, I have seen a tremendous amount of artwork about abortion bans from young women, you know, or young girls but also boys too, but mostly the girls. And uh, it is, it's really affecting everybody. And this generation, I'm like very concerned for them. I, I think that no matter what your political views are, we just can't censor because that's fascism. And if people aren't allowed to express different viewpoints, we're never gonna grow. Not every student that walks through my room has the same opinion that I have. Not every artist that I meet or that I show it has the same opinions. And I wouldn't want that. Um, in fact, like all of my friends are very different from me. They, they have commonalities also, obviously, but I don't want to be in an echo chamber personally. Although some people apparently like that idea of being in an echo chamber. Yeah. But I think it's really, we can't, evolve as a species <laughs> if we're just going to only follow one set of ways of being. Mm. Well, let's talk about your work, your your journey to be, uh, I mean, I imagine that uh, someone said on one of the interviews that I didn't decide to be an artist. I always was an artist. I, I just decided to be a professional artist. Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your journey to art making and sort of how what role that's played in your life? Yeah, I always made things. When I, 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 I don't know, I remember like sewing all the time when I was really little. For some reason, every time I talk about my childhood, I think everything started when I was eight years old. So you'll keep hearing that when I was eight years old. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I believe that's actually a <laughs> developmental milestone from like the magical thinking child to the rational child. If you've ever read Gebser on theory, Gebser's theory of mind, like time, space, and consciousness, this is amazing. It's so amazing. But right around eight, there's a there's a break in how we understand the world. So huh. maybe there's something in there. I'll have to look into it because it's a thing. And I'm a very rational, logical person, even though I think, you know, listening to your intuition is very important. <laughs> it's just my my go-to part of the brain, but, um, but also like very physical. I like physical things. Um, like just, you know, I want to touch things. I want to feel the wind on my body. I hate computers. I mean, I do stuff on the computer. I use a laser cutter to, to cut the text through my pieces. So I use it, but I much rather just like touch things and like painting is 
my favorite thing to do, even though a lot of my work isn't just painting because I, I like the conceptual aspect. I want to make stuff. I just have certain ideas. Anyway, I thought I was going to be a fashion designer when I was a kid. And I think I started sewing when I was eight. And then I went to music and art high school, which uh, just on a side note, I think is a big reason I became a teacher because that school really, I think in some ways saved me. My brother and sisters uh, went to the local high school in the Bronx and none of them were interested in education after going to that high school. And music and art, I was an art major and I was around like-minded people instead of being like the weirdo freak that shaved half of her head <laughs> when she was a kid, all of a sudden people were like, yeah, you look cool. <laughs> and then I, uh, I did that. I went to purchase and then I got a grant and residency program in Holland for two years where the Dutch government paid for me to live uh, and do my work there. They gave me a studio and an apartment space and and it was fantastic, but like the idea of a choice of being a professional artist, it was um, not a supportive environment. It was very competitive. Um, I'm a very supportive person. And I was making all these paintings about AIDS because my brother passed away from AIDS when I was 17. I felt like only a certain group of people were seeing my paintings and I wanted to directly help people. So I did that really weird route where I went, I came back to America, got a degree as an art therapist, worked as a therapist for a couple of years, and then went to teaching. And then when I was around 30, like I did my artwork always, I never stopped, but I didn't try to show it again until I was about 30, because I wanted to really know why I was doing what I was doing. And in Holland, I, I moved to Holland when I was 19, I, um, I finished college at 19, so I was there from 19 to 21. And it was very, um, a lot of pressure. And even though I really liked what I was doing, I started feeling like, am I doing these paintings because people like them or because I like them? And I just wanted to be older. And then I've been showing my work ever since. And uh, I feel like really happy about the choices I've made. Being an educator and being an artist are equally important to me. And it's like really interesting that I'm at this point in my life where my work is becoming about education. So it's like they've connected in a way it never has before. All of these uh, laser cut text pieces that you've done, uh, reiterating contracts, social contracts, amendments, uh, it, is, it all feels to me like education and like you're blending the verbal and the tactile and the image in a really unique way. So when did you first come into this, uh, this laser cutting CNC overlay? So I, I'm going to just go back a little bit to like the pieces that are in the show, which I call moments of contact with the circles on the white space with the figurative imagery in the circles for, you know, a decade at least. And I still do those paintings. They were all about emotion balanced with intellectual logic. So like an emotional logic and an intellectual logic, I think both are equally important, I think. And this connects to the laser cuts, but I feel like in our society, people either uh, value emotion or they value intellect. And a lot of times people don't see that they're both equally important. So I um, um, put them together and moments of contact is this sort of idea of like, there are all these moments that we experience in life and it's the way we put them together that creates a system or a thought or a story. 
And um, the circles are so sharp, like, you know, that geometry to balance, like the idea of math versus like free flowing painting, because inside the circles are all free flowing and emotional. So and then they're arranged sometimes in systems that are very rigid. The laser cuts, when Trump got elected, I just freaked out, which I'm sure half the people you talk to <laughs> is like pre-Trump error and post-Trump error. So I um, had to do something. And so I, oh, but actually before I did the Trump, the, the social contract, I did do the, um, an irrational numbers. I was doing E, which is a rate of growth and decay. I laser cut that through some of uh, the circular images for a series I called E. Sorry, I'm, I hope this is clear, but basically I made bigger images instead of an oil paint. I did them in watercolor because you can't laser cut um, oil paint. Canvas. Yeah. Well, it's the oil paint. It's the toxicity. And so if you look up close to my E paintings, the whole thing, the paper is made out of numbers. And so it started off as this thing where I'm showing like the outside system, the emotion, and then the numbers, um, the rate of growth and to get decay. I showed that with the growth and decay of relationships. Then I changed to words at the same time. Sorry, this is a really long story. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. I mean, I feel like hearing the backstory is always, I mean, people are going to be able to see the, a lot of the imagery by going to your site. And it's always more interesting to sort of hear the process and backstory. Uh, it makes it more meaningful. Um, thank you. So with the E, you know, irrational number, uh, rate of growth and decay, my friend Elise, who is one of my favorite people in the world, and she's one of my favorite poets, she wrote a chat book called Alternates. And we've done like collaborations. And I, so in alternates, something that she does with her writing in general, but also in alternates is she does poems that connect, but they're in a nonlinear sequence. So, and so the, in this chapbook alternate, it's about a couple and their relationship. But as you read through it, it's just not time sequenced. And so I just really love that. So it was the growth and decay of the relationship the same way I was doing with E. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to laser cut Elise's poem into my piece, uh, into a couple of pieces. And I just like loved it. Uh, and then as I was doing that, all this happened and then Trump got elected and so I ended up moving to social contracts or social agreements. I say social agreements because, you know, social contract is a very weighty expression, which I like. But, you know, um, I'm going to say so. also because, you know, when you have a bicycle lane, that's a social agreement. <laughs> you know, don't walk in the bicycle lane so that or don't drive your car in the bicycle lane so people can, you know, ride through the city and, you know, not pollute the air. So social agreements are not just like heavy weighted contracts. But I did the um, Constitution. That was the first one I did. I called it America's social contract. And it was um, multiracial hands pulling each other up to try to show like this idea of hope. And I laser cut the Constitution through it to show what I believe our social contract is supposed to mean as opposed to this white supremacist bullshit. Can I say that? <laughs> That's being shoved down our throats. Thanks. <laughs> Can you talk about this naval project you did? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. I look at the belly button. 
and I don't see the belly button. Okay, for your people who are listening, they're discs, they're little tiny round discs, again, constrained by the geometric shape. And they've got people's navels with hair, without hair, with scars, the innies, the outies, all the things, different skin colors. And when I look at that, I don't see belly buttons. I see umbilical cords. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, it's kind of the same thing. <laughs> but I see like the tendrils outward to all of their ancestors and how everybody's like basically hanging off a, this tree with these tendrils and, and then it just keeps going. But I wonder if you talk about the origin of that project and sort of how what it means to you. I love that, first of all. <laughs> um, there are two inch in diameter wood tondos that they're painting on. And I think I did like 56 friends or something. And then I just had to start making them up or looking them up. Like I looked up belly buttons online, but they're ca it's called creation stories. Like a lot of the systems that I research were um, belief systems. So a lot of them were religious and like I would see this image, you know, where people would have atheists underneath a belly button. And I thought that was such a funny image that I would see. Like, so like whatever religious beliefs you have, there's just always this connection of your belly button. It's like your creation story. That's where you're from. So whether you believe that, you know, the world is a turtle and you're on its shell, <laughs> or if you believe that God made you, like made Adam and women from a rib, uh, whatever it is, we all have evidence of our creation story. And I just think that's super neat that, you know, I know where I came from, from my belly button. <laughs> and so I made them all like put together to just show the idea of like diverse ways of seeing where you come from. And it is like ancestry. I saw a Reddit thing on that, on that atheism thing. Listen, you guys, there, there's a joke on Reddit. It says, um, you know, how do uh, religious people respond to why Adam and Eve are always depicted having belly buttons if they were just created out of clay? And the guy says, well, here's the way it goes. God made Adam out of clay. He made Eve out of Adam's rib. And then he was so happy with himself that he poked Adam in the stomach and Adam said, whoo. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> and so he tried it on Eve and God declared that who, who, who was good and therefore, anyway, whatever. I thought that was funny. It is funny. It's like the shush with the fulcrum, you know, that little dent right underneath your nose above your lip. It's because God told someone to shush. Oh, really? So they put, yeah, I've heard that a lot. I've never yeah. heard that before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Th this goes back to being two and people telling you not, not to speak. Shush. Huh, okay, yeah. fine, <laughs> fine. Um, okay, so I love that. So these these doctrines and belief systems pervade your work. And it, it's also very local, like while the themes are universal, you know, the upliftment of children by their parents, etc. You're using a lot of American domestic documentation, amendments and constitution, all that kind of stuff. You also did stuff with the UN. So I don't want to say it's just America. But it's, it's very hyper-localized to the belief systems and the culture that you are present with. So everything that I did pre-Trump was not local. And now, like, I'm doing these banned books. It was, like, I'm really excited about what I'm painting right now or making because I laser cut also. But, you know, when you're an artist and you have your brand, it's always a little bit like, hmm, you know, this is sort of like off my brand a little bit. But I have to do it 
And I just feel like right now, like the idea of local, I'm recording history. That's just what I'm doing. And uh, by the way, all the books that I paint, I've read the books to make sure that like I understand what's going on with the laws and people's views about the books. I don't want to pick books that I don't know anything about. Um, but yeah, so right now it, it is. It's very much what I see in America. Um, that's what, like the first one that I made that was a social contract was America's social contract. I didn't call it the Constitution because it is. It's about America. And um, I do like doing world like global laws and global um, ideas, but I, I just can't help but to feel like this is what's happening right here, right now. You know, even with the, the book banning, like the American Library Association, I love them. <laughs> they have their own Bill of Rights and it's all against censorship. And I mean, people should just read it. I am going to laser cut it through one of through a few books that have been like number one bands this year, like the top 10 bands. I, I feel that like while it's important to understand the world, like, I, I don't like to use the word universally because we're not talking about the universe. We're talking about the globe, the world. But yeah, I'm like steeped in America right now. How could you not be? <laughs> I mean, I understand you could not be, but that's how I feel. Well, there are a lot of people who yeah. are not. There, There's actually an entire segment of society who's basically said that's all too confusing and too fraught with with um, corruption that we're just going to step out and make a separate world. They're They're trying as much as possible to ignore the body politics. So... There's actually something very heartening to me. You said you were a little discouraged by what was happening. It's very heartening to me to see you looking directly in the face of it. Yeah, and I, I, a lot, some of my friends are really sort of just like, I can't take it anymore. And I'm actually doing a piece. I'm not talking about it too much because it's not completely resolved, but it's about the overturning of Roe. And I'm connecting it with rape victims. And I worked with rape victims. And I have a thing about like rape survivor versus rape victim. I feel like people are like they were victimized, you know, so however anyone wants to call it, it's the whole idea that I'm calling it the second rape, because people who get raped, get pregnant. It's really just what's happening is really disturbing. And sometimes I have to hold myself back sometimes from talking to people about things because I understand people don't want to deal with it. And I respect them and I have to respect that. But what if they're like, not everyone I know who feels this way has children, but what if something happens to your daughter? You know, what if something happens where there's this unwanted pregnancy? And, and if you believe that, you know, um, the pregnancy is a blessing from God or a blessing in general, that's great. And that's your choice, but it should be someone's choice. I don't think... And I'm not pro-abortion. Like, I don't think abortion's a great thing, but I'm pro-choice because people should have choice. And I personally, if I was raped and got pregnant, I would not want to have the child. It would be too difficult. And even though I can't get pregnant because I got my tubes tied, there's this like new threat all around me. You know, I feel threatened because of this. And I am not someone who can stick their head in the sand. I have to fight back. That's just the way I was raised. It's worked for me. So I'm going to keep doing it <laughs> and respecting those who choose not to. Yeah, I mean, it's very personal. Biology is destiny and this choice is destiny in so many ways. 
you said something about being called to do these band books. And in there, you whispered it slightly like artists sh- should have a brand and all that. <laughs> Did I whisper like, that? <laughs> let, you didn't, you said it out loud, but it was like sort of a subtext. And I want to go back to that because that feels like the opposite of what artists should be doing. Like artists should be listening to the voice inside their head that says, this is what's meaningful to society now. This is what I'm sensing. What you're doing with the like, I must paint this seems to be exactly the role of artists. But what's this like you should thing about the commercial side of art and how does that impact your thinking? Uh, That's a great question. It's a huge reality that everyone has to deal with. I like having a brand. Like to me, having a brand, even though there, there's also bad things like that I don't like. But like for me, and I discuss this with students, like the difference between being a hobbyist and being a professional artist. I have taken so much of my life where I've like really focused and researched specific things, specific ways of painting, specific thoughts and like specificity, I'm not saying that well, but that's like what brings you to a certain level, having that specificity. God, I can't say that word. (laughs) So I, I do believe that there's like something really beautiful about professional artists who really focus and bring something to the highest level that they can possibly bring it or to the deepest level that they could possibly bring it. And I will always... I am way more interested in being happy in my studio than showing my work, even though showing my work is important. But I like maintaining that idea of like bringing something to a certain level. The word brand is pretty terrible that I do feel that way. Um, So it's not that I want to be branded. That's advertisement. That's commercial world. Um, It's that I want to I like to hone in on ideas and, and let them grow and evolve. So it's something that all professional artists have to consider. I I don't really know anyone who does work because they have to stick with it, but I do know a lot of artists who have had struggles with their gallerist because they want to do something new and their work sells the way it is. And so they don't want them to deviate from it. And I've also had experience where I've changed Like I get sick of stuff at a certain point and I want to do something new. And I've had a lot of success with some things and then I stop doing it and then you kind of have to start over again. So it's a balancing act. But in the end, I'm personally, I'm just going to make what I feel like driven to make. Thank you, Diana. You can find Diana's work at sensingwoman.org. And now we're going to switch gears and hear from Faye Koo. How do you know Christina? The curator, did she find you or did you know her she, before? You know what? She found me and I don't exactly remember how she found me. I think it might have been through an artist registry of some sort. Um, and she had curated me in another show um, up in um, Helm, New York. And um, I stayed in touch with her and she continues to enjoy my work. And so I'm very happy to be included in yet another one of her projects. I think she curates really beautiful shows. So I'm very, I feel very honored that she likes my work. Um, and wants to include me. She's She's been lovely to work with, and she's chosen such a, a wide array of artists, um, all ages, all philosophical orientations. And, and you know, some of the stuff in yours, I'm, I mean, in general, the idea of putting together this show was about exposing 
different views on what's happening in female embodiment. You know, things that people otherwise wouldn't see that like artists generally see things in, in a way that's kind of catching the wind or the edge of the culture. And so when I look at your stuff, uh, I'm, you know, it's got me off thinking on all kinds of themes, you know, from uh, childhood innocence, innocence lost, you know, who do you belong to, all kinds of things. So I wonder if we could just start with that, you know, what is sort of your sense of, of, of what you're speaking to in the female experience? Oh, um, wow. <laughs> Sorry, like, wow. No, just um, a small, light question to start with. Um, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I wonder if it would be helpful to to look at images together, even though this is just audio. But um, yeah, my work, it's not autobiographical, but it's very much grounded in my own experiences. Um, there is imagination, of course, you know, just like the way a writer would imagine um, scenarios and whatnot. But very much like these, while not autobiographical, they're personal. And I've been making this work since um, the work that you see, like on my website and whatnot. I've been making this work now, God, how old am I? Almost 20 years. It's funny because I see the work growing with me in and also in terms of like my, I don't want to say like so much views because I don't, I don't think about intellectually sometimes because I'm just living my experiences. And then afterwards, I, I look at the work and I sort of realize what I'm thinking after the fact, if that makes any sense. And so it's funny because like the very first, um, the very first of my work, well, which started around 2004 while I was still in graduate school, I w- it was the first time I was delving into like my own personal experiences. And I think I was feeling a bit, I don't want to say shy or, or apprehensive, um, but it was the first time I was, I was, I was like looking at this, at, at myself and bringing it out into the public or bringing it out for other people to see. Um, and so um, part of the reason uh, that, the, they're populated by very young children. Um, they're not children in the sense of, um, like, you know, I think about like Bugs Bunny, you know, what I grew up with. Bugs Bunny isn't a rabbit, you know, even though he's a rabbit. So in some ways, like the children um, early in my work are not children, even though they, you know, could be children, they look like children, they're really like avatars. But then very slowly, and I didn't do this on purpose, I realized like after the fact again that these children started growing up, like they got older. And then there was more like in the beginning, the uh, the women, the adult figures in the work tended to be like adversarial. I'm sure that reflected like my own relationships with other women. Um, and then there was more of a partnership in the, between like the young children and the women and the children were growing up. And there was more of a collaborative relationship. And eventually my, my characters became women. And then sometimes the women appear alone and sometimes the women appear amongst others. And again, this is not like, I don't intellectualize. I don't like decide like, oh, this is going to be about society, but that's sort of what happens. Like sometimes, you know, we go through through our lives, we go through different um, areas. Like sometimes we're more concerned about certain things than others. Sometimes we're more really like thinking about ourselves and our relationship to ourselves, our bodies, our relation, our identity and whatnot. Um, and those tend to end up being the solitary figures. And then when there's more figures, it's when I'm more concentrated and focused on thinking about society. I'm sorry, this is like a really long... No, no, this is actually really good. That is the fun- fundamental tension. The last person that I spoke to said that there's really no way to get to the societal question or the the we except through going through the me. Like you have to presence at the individual state in order to connect to and uh, understand how that's related to the collective. So I, I love that answer, actually. There's a, I, what I, one thing I, I do have a question from the work is, you know, I looked at all the collections from 2004 until the 2020 collection, What Was Lost, and 
only in 2020 um, do your figures start yelling. And um, I was like, what's that trend? All, and all of the rest of them, they're, they're looking at the camera they, or at the, at the artist or the viewer. They have various forms of expression. They're placid. They're, they're sometimes bound. Uh, they're, they're masked or covered or they're turning away. But then comes this series and you've got at least three where they're just mouths wide open in what looks like screaming. So tell me about that. <laughs> Funny. I mean, I do have a couple others where the, the faces are a bit more um, animated early on. I do, I do notice that the faces tend to be more, more neutral. I mean, I don't think of them as neutral. I do feel like there's a lot of emotions suppressed, but I think it has to do with, um, I'm trying to think, like, do you know, like, I look at a lot of Shunga, um, I look at a lot of different artworks. And do you ever look at Shunga artworks? Tell me what that is. Um, Shunga is like a Japanese woodblock, mm-hmm. but it's erotic. They're amazing. They're really like they're wild, and they're like there's like they're really graphic, sexual like the sexual poses. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But there there's this like modesty, or there's like this containment within it, and I think there's something within me that um, while I'm expressing things of like violence, let's say, or if I'm or things that are like very emotive, I there's a part of me that sort of sort of like is a bit more restrained and that just might be an aesthetic or personal thing i think about like i love movies i love film and i think about acting i love the acting where people are not emoting and things are more restrained and things are hidden i think that has a lot to do with the way that um i experience in my familial life like the type like when emotions um happened well, I'm taking that back. Sometimes the emotions are very sort of like suppressed and restrained. I think there's um, a part of it where that feels more authentic to me. Not to say that like the characters aren't always capable, but they tend to be more um, contained within themselves. So containment, subtlety, it's not that the emotion is not there. It's just held in a, in a more private way. Uh, I read something once where it said, you know, people always say there's there's no emotion in the Midwest. Like people suppress their emotions. It's, but but that actually, if you are from the Midwest, you can tell like the twist of a mouth or, oh no, that's fine. Like, it's, it's actually just being able to read the levels of subtlety in that communication. Totally. Oh, totally, totally. Um, it's funny. My father had a, um, both my parents, well, I mean, sorry, this is like, duh, because everyone's parents has a huge impact on them, probably bigger than, and you know, anyone else, obviously. But my father um, used to say something to me when I was, when I was little, like a little kid, and I would, you know, cry or be upset, you know, he would say something, those who show their emotions more actually feel less. Wow. And it, and it, I know, I never forgot. That. <laughs> <laughs> shows you a little bit of his own psychology. Do you believe, as as an adult, do you believe that? No, of course not. Of course not. Of course not. But it's, it was, um, I think about like whatever shaped him to say that. And it definitely made an impact on me. And it's something I've turned over in my head. I've never completely accepted it either, but it's definitely something I think about. And sometimes I do um, mistrust people who say or express a lot sometimes because of that, I think. Yeah, there's a correlation like that hits me in two ways. One is that catharsis and release uh, doesn't necessarily mean like feeling and healing, you know, that that it's sometimes like doesn't isn't grounded in experience and understanding. It's just like letting go of a charge. And the other piece is that if you don't 
release in a healthy way, then you will hold on to the emotion longer and it will haunt you and it'll stay with you. And you might actually feel it deeper over a period of time. So I could see why they would be true. I was listening, you know how on NPR public radio, they have little snippets of interviews or I, I, I remember I had misremembered hearing this interview, but I loved my misremembering. And I was mishearing Alvin, I think it was Alvin Ailey talking about his experience. I could be wrong. Maybe it's not out. No, it's someone else. Oh, this is terrible. An American, uh, an American choreographer. Can't be Alvin Ailey because he's still alive. My, my, but I don't remember who it is. Anyways, so he was um, talking about how his father um, like walked five miles every day to get to work. And I don't remember what his father did, but something blue collar. And he was in school and he remembers looking out the window on a snowy day and seeing his father go to work and feeling not shame. Like he felt a bit, he felt like shame that he was in school and his father had to go to work, but also lucky. Like he felt shameful that he was lucky that he didn't have to do that, that he was so glad that his father had to suffer in the, in the snow and he didn't. And he never told anyone about it for 40 years. Now, he, this is not the interview because then I heard the real interview and I was completely misremembered it. But I had thought that he hadn't told anyone this memory and the shame of it deepened his experience in, of the memory of it. And it made for a richer story or a richer source when he finally said it. So I, I've interpreted what my father said about the holding on as not repression, but maybe in some ways, maybe not letting the emotion show through until you've sort of figured it out, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. Like you're, you're absorbing it and you're making sense of it, what it means to you before you blurt it out and share it with someone else. Although I do know there are external processors and the only way that they can figure it out is by talking about it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying <laughs> I'm actually super, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm like a super like spontaneous impulsive person. So I, I have my father in me, but I have also my mother in me. Who's not like that. You include a lot of nature in your work. Um, women with peacock feathers and uh, sitting in fields with mushrooms and flowers and among the birds and the animals. Can you speak a little bit about that, the relationship between your characters and nature? Um, it's so funny because I'm such a city girl. Like I, I had a residency in um, in Switzerland. It was like beautiful. I looked like it, it looked like it was like, you know, like Heidi. Do you remember like Heidi? You know, like like going off yes. traps. And the Almanker. Heidi and the Almanker. <laughs> she goes up to the, Clara comes from Dusseldorf. Yes. Well, and I'm, she's in her wheelchair and she must get better. And the Alpen Air helps her. Oh my God, yeah, that's no. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I live, okay, so I was living there for a month and, you know, and I was like, oh, this is gorgeous. I got to go out for a hike every day. And I did that one time <laughs> and that was it. And then I just looked out my window every day and just drew and I didn't need to <laughs> It's funny because I'm I'm not like I I like when I go on vacation I prefer to go to cities I always like I everything I love in this world is about civilization it's about the artifacts that people have left behind because I'm really interested in meeting another mind and the closest you can get to another mind whether it's a societal mind or a personal mind like that's that's what like turns me on and that's what I'm always looking for I always go to films movies art dance all those things. And nature, even though they're beautiful, they leave me kind of cold. But I think I do include it because I I think part of it's just philosophical. Like I know I'm a part of nature. You know, like I am like, you know, humans are a part of nature. There's no difference. 
the the like I think about the city as just like an urban jungle, you know, like they also work as I don't want to say metaphors, but like I think about the literati, you know, in, in Chinese um, traditional arts. And there's always like, even though there's like pure ink, like landscape and it's all nature, there's almost always like a small human somewhere, you know? Um, and I think about, I think about those things. I think about human behaviors, wherever the setting is as like part of like, I don't know, like maybe it's because I watched too many nature programs, you know, like when I was little, like I watched like a lot of nature programs and they aren't, they weren't sanitized like they are now, but I would see what was happening, you know, when, when animals were killing each other or whatever, you know, cruel. And I would see like human behavior reflected in that too. I, I, have never really lived in nature. So it's, it's a interesting concept. It's like an interesting thing for me to, to always borrow it, but I think it's a stand in for something else. Yeah. The peacock is a stand in, in Matamayura in Sanskrit. It's a stand in for uh, intelligence, wisdom, all kinds of different qualities. I wonder uh, there seem to be some things in the work that have a little Indian influence. Like the there's a there's one where you call it the Whore of Babylon, but it looks an awful lot like Kali with her skulls. Do you have any of that in your background? Um, I do. Um, so the peacock is um, that's directly from my first literary love um, were, was a Greek mythology. Um, and, and it's Greek mythology is like the first time I understood, like I was, you know, a kid, I grew up, um, you know, I was born in Taiwan. Um, uh, my family came to America first. I was raised by my grandparents and I moved to America and it was like, compl- it was totally wild. Like I moved to a place where I didn't know the people. I didn't know my parents cause they were strangers to me. I didn't know the culture. I didn't know the language. I didn't know anything. I didn't understand why people behave the way they did. My parents couldn't explain why people behave the way they did or you know no one can explain why my parents behave the way they did because we were the only asian family for you know or one of you know only couple um until i was like older um and greek mythology was the first time i understood the world like i was like ah this is the picture of a world i understand for whatever reason so those um stories and those images really like stuck with me. And so the peacock is just something that um, is a theme and motif that I've depicted throughout the years and they've like changed and morphed and, um, and I've like, re- like borrowed them again. So um, like the peacock always bothered me because when you, like the peacock is a sign of vanity, right? But um, so the story goes is that um, Argus, the hundred eyed um, monster um, that was a guardsman, for Hera um, was slain by uh, Hermes, and you know um, to to pay homage to him, she put the dead eyes onto her favorite bird, the peacock. So the peacock is a sign of um, like vanity because it wants people to look at it, but it's the one with the eyes. But not only is it the one with the eyes, it's the one with it's got dead eyes. So it's something that struck me like all these weird paradoxes. Like somehow I I knew there were paradoxes. And it bothered me because it was illogical, but it but it also sort of made sense. Like, of course, it should be illogic. And so the idea of the peacock made sense as like a woman who wants, you know, when I was younger, I wanted people to look at me, but I didn't want them to look at me. Like, what does it mean to have dead eyes? So it's just sort of a motif that I sort of borrowed. But I don't know as much about India. Like, I love different mythologies and different um, stories and cultures. And I try to I steal little places wherever I can. 
Um, but they're, they've sort of been like removed from the original like source and been like reinterpreted by me. So um, the Horror of Babylon is um, actually, I think that was more originally inspired by like depictions of the Horror of Babylon by different artists. That's a pretty intense one. I, it's, it seemed, I, I can't remember, um, I'm not looking at it now, but timed with the ones that were in the bondage, like more seat tied up bound in some way. Is that the same collection? Um, I think it's around the same time period. I'm like, let me take a look really quickly if that's going to slow it down. From the 20, I think it's from like 2019 or so, maybe. I mean, that was a pretty tumultuous time in my life, just in terms of like, you know, at that age, like, what, what is my future? What do I want to be? What does it mean to be a woman? You know, like, do I want like, is, you know, what is my future? Where do I go? And I think um, that that came across in a lot of my work at that point. I mean, again, they're not autobiographical. But I do think it fed off of like those, those that sort of um, place of uncertainty that was feeling like, it felt like very sort of um, intense at that time. So I'm, I'm glad you picked up on it. Yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, the, I think it's the Nasty Woman series, but that's not the one with the uh, Horror of Babylon. Oh, it is. It is actually. Yeah, it's around the same time period. 2013, yeah. 2013. Yeah. And it's uh, for those of you who haven't been to fakeku.com, she's going to be coming and speaking at Sensing Woman. She's got a piece in the show in the online gallery at sensingwoman.org and also in the live show, obviously. But I'm looking at her material, and she did a series around 2013. Is Nasty Women an allusion to uh, what was going on politically in that election? This was before. This was... Um, Dude, I, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you. I'm chronologically challenged. I think this was like... It's like, like four years before, three years before. But you know what? There you go. You were on to something. You picked it up in the zeitgeist, <laughs> and there it was, you know, appearing later. But in this series, the women are variously found in positions of either submission or being hidden um, or they're combined with uh, birds and sort of mixed with other creatures there. It's a very, um, as you're saying, tumultuous series, but also strangely like compelling. Like I want to know what's going on in the mind of these beings. Did you find out an answer for yourself, by the way, in terms of your own future and your direction? Oh, for me? Um, yeah. I guess we're in, yes and no. I feel, I think like the idea of having children was, you know, whether or not I was going to do that or not. I think that that was a time in my life where it felt more pressing. Like, you know, like I, I need to decide if this is what I want to do or not do, even though I didn't have a partner at the time. Or maybe I'm trying to think, did I have a partner? No. Um, I mean, I, I've been, ever since I was five years old, I, I've been telling everyone that I was never going to get married and have kids. I actually did end up getting married, but whatever, fine, sorry. Um, but um, Sorry, five-year-old self. I know, sorry. I well, didn't mean to betray you. But I did it for tax reasons, for, for practicalities. I also read Jane Austen, so whatever, no. Like, I, but you know, like, I, I've told myself that, and then something happens at a certain age, and like, I think... I think it's your your body kicks in like this is now or never. You you should decide now or never. And then something happens. Like I do think that sometimes um, I, I don't believe the mind body divide. Like we are our bodies, and sometimes our bodies are like, are you sure? Are you sure? And like ah, don't make me think. I don't want to think about this. And it, my body was making me think about it. And um, I think 
I did make the right decision in the end. It's funny. I was I just finished watching the documentary um, on the on Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. I don't know if you've seen it. And it's and Joanne Woodward seems like an amazing. She seemed like she was an amazing mother. Seems like she was amazing, and she was obviously an amazing actress. You know, amazing woman. Um, and she was amazingly honest in her interviews in a way that I don't think people can be anymore because they're too afraid. Because I don't know. Because and, uh, anyways. Um, so she said that she adored all her children, adored them. Each of each one was loved so dearly. But she, if she had to do it again, she would not have children. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? You know, can you imagine the her her kids must have felt to hear that? But her, you know, her career suffered. You know, and so and it's and it's really funny. So I think about like the time when I was not, sh- you know, like I mistrusted my five-year-old self and I was so unhappy about it. <laughs> and now I'm just like, well, no, I was, I think I was, I, I'm pretty sure I was right. We, we will find out maybe 50 years from now, but I'm, I'm still pretty sure I'm right. So you did not have children? No. I, it, even if I thought that, I would never say that out loud. I know. I know. I mean, it's, I, I wonder if like, I think I've heard that more often recently, but only told like, quietly and confidential, you know, but it's, it's like, it's like, um, maybe it's like string theory, you know, like maybe you wished you had the other life, you know, where you didn't have the kids. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe somewhere in another parallel universe, you have them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like there's a, something happening in the collective right now. I was, I did a, uh, I led a workshop on Saturday on eco-spirituality. And one of the things was around data, like 40% of youth under 25 on every country on earth say they do not want to reproduce because of climate change. Like that's that, and, and that over half of them are existentially worried. And that's a very, I mean, imagine the level of trauma that people are carrying in, in these kind of choices now. Like, what do we do? I think one in four adults have that sort of existential trauma. And then the other quarter, don't have a lot of feelings about it one way or the other, and the other half are indifferent. They're really like tuned out. So I I don't know how we get to bridge that divide. I think you have to feel that, you know. Anyway, that was a detour from the climate, from the um, child choice. I don't know if these polls were taken like, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years, I'm sure they were, but like, I'm trying to think now about all my friends when, you know, like, when I was younger, how many of us had said we didn't want kids and how many of them ended up having them? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, the world has always been, like, really troubled. You know, it always seems like there were a couple of years when I felt, like, really optimistic. But it seems like there was always something existentially threatening the human population, you know, the, the world, you know. And I, and I don't mean to belittle the, you know, the environmental crisis that we're in because it's pretty huge. And I know that, like, we... Oh, a huge apology to future generations. But like in the end, like the the places that are the most populated, like the most populated places are the least responsible for all the damage. So you can have children. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like, well, then just give up your just give up your life. Like I was just in I was just in um, Venice. Um, I was teaching there and um, I, I visited before, but only as a like, you know, a tourist. And then I was living there and it was amazing because like all of a sudden, like I've never been more uncomfortable and happy in my entire life. And I was really not unhappy, like uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable because it was really hot. It was really humid. 
And I couldn't use my AC unless it was certain. And even then I felt really guilty and yet fewer options. Like I got really tired because I really wanted Chinese food because, you know, that's what I like, you know, but there wasn't any, you know, but the food that you had was delicious. And I was, and it really made me think like, wow, I'm so spoiled. I'm so spoiled because I, even though I know like you have limited options because this is what's growing here and this is what's sustainable. And now I'm like, oh, but I want this. Like we, we have a choice. We, we can all decide to give up these things if we really care, really. And you can have children. That's not, those aren't the questions. I'm sorry. I'll get off my soapbox. I don't mean no, to No, no, this is great. This is really important. I also, you know, there was, there's been this big study on, you know, what is the normal rate of not having children and what's happening now, like normative through all of history. And it was always like one in five women would end their reproductive or their bearing years without having a child. And now it's like one in four in America and one in three in Japan. And so there's obviously stuff at work. It's never been like that. But, you know, the, let's go back to Joanne Woodward. Like you have an opportunity, you know, to actually pursue and live this full and rich and vibrant life that leverages all of the talents and graces you've been given. You know, and raising a kid is hard, man. And it goes on forever. My kid's like 36 <laughs> and I'm still talking to him, at, you know, every few days. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I have six, mm. you know, my four and then I raise two more. So it's like, it's a very, it's a very intense. Sometimes like I think about like, I, I, I was looking at the, the most famous scientists and artists and authors and all of these philosophers throughout history. And it's all, I'm like, not a single one of those guys was cooking meals, doing laundry, mm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. doing any of the things that maintain the physical body on earth. And so they had all of this time completely subsidized by the domestic labor to do whatever they wanted. And you're seeing now in the emergence of like such a plethora of genius female artists, genius musicians, uh, legal scholars. We now have, you know, four star generals that are women, you know, th this that, that when freed from that choice and, and from the burden of that every day, that they're just, there was so much genius that was suppressed or diffused in householding and, and body maintenance. Oh, totally, totally, totally. Well, what would you like to talk to us about before we wind down? I'm so excited to uh, show people your work, but, you know, I've been kind of jumping all over and I want to make sure that we tell, you know, get what, uh, what you want to talk about. I guess maybe I think the works that I'm showing are a bit older works. And I'm maybe I have a question for you, which is you've looked at the more recent works. And I'm just curious to hear, oh, maybe, maybe it's putting you on the spot, but just like, it's always nice to see like, a, like um, maybe like from an outsider point of view, some or a fresh point of view, like what does the trajectory of one's work looks like? When I was looking at the work, I was struck by, it was similar to what you were saying, like the way these, I did not perceive them as avatars. I did perceive them as children. But that, that it sort of got bolder and uh, more awake. Like the kids kept, the, the avatars, I guess, kept getting more awake as you progressed. And you were commenting increasingly on like, uh, you know, would you t how, are, you t are you tied up? Are you bound? Would you twist yourself into a new position? Do you decorate yourself? Do you hide your face? Do you stand on your head? Or do you scream? You know, like there's, there's this, like, how are you positioned in space time relative to your space? And it, it it kept getting, I really like the way that that evolved over the course of, of the last, I guess, 18 years that are on your site anyway. The two pieces you're showing, one is one of the Peacock series, Vainglory, 
Do you want to talk about that piece? Yeah, sure. It's a it's a very strange piece for for me. Um, sometimes, okay, so sometimes um, I just I just make the work, and I just need to make the work because I just need to make work, and I don't think about it too much. Um, if I don't have like a fresh idea, like sometimes there's like you have like a big idea that's like you know you've been thinking about, and then you express, it, and sometimes you don't, but you just make the work regardless of having ideas or not because that's how you get into the flow of things. And so I've been making these. Uh, I've been working on peacock uh, motifs and also these, the nasty women series. Um, it just, it just sort of evolved from like the hair, like the hair, there's like these hairdresses. So the thing that is yourself, like part of yourself is actually what ends up constraining and also dressing you. And then I can't remember how I got into it, but then I started thinking about like feathers because feathers is, and then women who become harpies and whatnot. So um, it was just continuation of the, um, of the motif. But the thing about the, um, peacock and being vain i think also i think i was probably also thinking about getting older and really wanting to have like an imperfect non-model body you know like a real body and it's funny because like it's the peacock who's the the uh, which is actually a male attribute you know having like those big tails of eyes and whatnot and they're like really fiery red eyes so they're kind of like angry eyes there's something really and i had i haven't figured out myself but there's something really kind of um provocative and like confrontational in the stance and this like determined this determination to be in your face but at the same time there's a very protective like body like language like the character is not you know splaying herself out completely right she's still like clutching her her upper half her torso and she's crossing her leg in this very sort of um you know kind of bird-like way i was trying to think of like what could actually like be kind of like a what would a person like prance around you know what would the stance look like but it's also trying to hide like the sex organs and the secondary organs like from the view so it's not completely it's sort of like um it's sort of being undermined like this whole idea of vainglor being like vain or being like it's, it's being undermined because she's actually trying to protect herself. So it's, it's one of those where I haven't, like, even now I'm still trying to figure out what it means. Like sometimes I think I make work because I think I know what I mean. And then I make the work and then like, huh, that's interesting. And sometimes I make the work to figure out what I'm thinking. And sometimes it's not clear. And sometimes later the, I reinterpret it and mean something else like years later. Yeah. I mean, for me, she does have like a defiant look. It's like, it's like a daring, she's like daring the viewer. Yeah, you want a piece of me? You want you you think you know about me? There's this this sort of daring and and she's naked, but it's not a sexual naked. It's like it's just what you were saying about the peacock eye. It's like look at me, don't look at me. Mm -hmm. And also, you made her eyes that same yellow and red. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, it's her it's her eyes on the tail too. You know, it's it's her eyes. There's that, and then she's in a you know rendered in a very neutral sort of uh, graphite, and then the 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 tails themselves are distracting from the core of her being in a way. Mm, mm, how interesting. Her central body is there and it's kind of like vulnerable, but but she, so, so, but I, but your eyes are drawn to what's in the background behind her. And then you have to like keep pulsing in and out of the feathers and the figure. Yeah, I should, I should probably also mention the material. So it's drawn on mylar, which is translucent. Um, it's like a translucent surface. And th this has been mounted onto plexi so that it's it's really beautiful like drawing on mylar you know it's like translucent so it's almost like drawing on air so it's not like the the weight of it's not like the weight of the paper you can mm -hmm. see through it yeah 
And so the, the way that I framed it, it's very kind of, is like, there's no backing to it. So there's air, there's a couple inches of air, even if you hang it. So that was also a few years where I was working on mylar. Um, oh, that's such a beautiful idea. How does that, how does mylar hold its shape and color over time? Um, it's plastic, so it's probably out less paper. Actually, <laughs> actually, you can recycle it. So I'm not horrible. You can actually recycle plastic, you know. Um, so it, it's fine. It, it won't like in some ways it's more, um, like when I do, when I work on more traditional papers, you have to like, you have to like frame it with like UV, you know, like UV protected or get it away from light, but because this is oil paint and graphite on mylar, it's like painting on plastic. It doesn't sound very sexy, but it's the mylar is actually gorgeous. Au contraire. It sounds so sexy to paint on air. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about let's talk about the other piece. The other piece in the show is called Reach, and the figure is doing plow, but in those kind of ballerina red shoes that the girl in the fable danced herself to death in, uh-huh, uh-huh. and a stripy zebra French maid's outfit. No, I don't know what that is, but uh, and then she's looking up as if she's going to give her own self yes. a nice licking. Exactly. What a trick. I will just please myself. <laughs> it's actually not plow. It's um it's the opposite. It's like scorpion? a scor- it's scorpion. it's extreme like, scorpion. Yeah. Scorpion with yeah. splayed legs. Yeah, it's like some yeah, I don't even know what the name of the asana is. It's lick your yeah. pussy asana. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, there's a um the there the little lace detail on the edge of the dress is actually um it's not lace but there's a lace paper that looks just like lace. Mm. So that's um and so that's actually like coming off from the paper. So it's like collaged on. So there's a little bit of like object, like it becomes like an object. So it's, it helps bring the idea of tactility to it because you can actually like reach and um, although it's framed, so you can't because it'll be lost in the way, but like you can actually reach and like play with the, the little lace paper around it. Hmm. So it's three dimensional. Yes. Barely. But yes. I, I, I want to, it just brings up for me this, these, um, the, in the sketch, there's aspects of the hair or fur or rope that are around her neck and around her. And I think that it showed up in a lot of the paintings. Can you speak about that detail? Yeah. So I, so I'm a drawer. I'm not a painter. And I, the, so when I want to cover the surface of, um, when I want to cover the surface of something, I use lines. So stripes are great because you're not using color to co- cover the surface of the paper, you're using lines. And hair is also great because you're coloring with texture, you're coloring with lines, you're not really coloring. Um, so that's just sort of the way that I naturally think. So hair, you know, it's just, it's fun for me to draw. Um, but I was drawing, um, I think the idea of costuming is always problematic, like costume, hair, whatever, because you're always conveying information because I, you know, I work with the figure. Um, so it's impossible to make a universal figure because it has to look like something. It has to have a gender. It has to have an age. It has to have, you know, these physical attributes. Um, so I think I was drawing like a lot of hair and I made like I think I was doing a Rapunzel series and I realized the hair looked like rope. And I was like, and this, and and I was like, oh, this is perfect. And then rope is something you can hang yourself with. So then I did, you know, rope and oh, it looks like this. It looks like sweater, knit sweater. So it's, um, it's something that I use over and over and over again because it's a way to cover the surface of the paper that um, feels like authentic and, and integral to what I do. Also a way to um, refer whatever the person is wear- quote unquote wearing the hair or whatever 
back to the actual person, the body, like it is the source of the dress. It is the source of the rope. It is the source of whatever. So I, I like, um, I like using hair for that. And the stripes of the costume is, um, I just like to use stripes because it also, um, creates the contour. It helps like, um, explain the contour of the body without having to like do a lot of shading. It's not that I mind doing shading. It's just a different way of thinking. Okay. I have one more, one more piece that I want to ask you about. The women who are sitting in lotus on a vaginal pole, what what is what is going on? Oh, I did a series of those, right? Oh, you know what? I think the the real the real like um, kernel that started that whole series is there was I think someone told me a really dirty joke that I don't need to share, <laughs> but it involves like um, a prostitute sliding down her stool, um, and that was such a strong image. And then I think I was seeing, um, this might've been the time when I saw um, Marina Abramovich's show at MoMA. And um, I didn't love the show because it's, you can't, it's not like anyone's fault. It's just that when you have people reenacting things that you did that like test of endurance, you know, like performance art that you yourself did, you're never going to be convinced by them. Except I was convinced by this one person who was, up above high and she was on and she was naked because everyone was naked and she was on a bicycle pedestal and she must have been on there for a while because it was painful you know it's painful to sit on you know and i just remember thinking like she's the only one i believe and um and oh so i i combine a lot of different ideas and one day there's like oh aha i have the image together and then also i think when i was um uh, I think when I was in fifth grade, so my birthday is usually right around the first day of school and whatnot. And my family moved a lot when I was a kid, um, not a lot, but we moved quite a few times. So I was constantly having my first bir- my birthday party in school with a bunch of strangers, which is awkward. And I had this like cake that was like had a doll on top and it was the cake was the dress, you know, like, and we cut into it and I was so excited because I was going to have a doll and I was so excited and my doll had a was a stick on the bottom, like a ball, like a Balinese shadow puppet kind of thing. Yeah, because it was it wasn't really a doll. It was just you know the, just the top part matter because you know hmm. it would just the rest of it would just be like you didn't need to have legs because it would just stuck into this cake dress. And so all these things are things I carried with me until one day I did the series where these women are on top of these poles and it's painful because there's poles you know and. And but they also became like the structure for like tents and whatnot. Yeah, uh, our time was up like twenty minutes ago, so I'm so glad that you stayed on and talked with me oh, some sorry. more. <laughs> I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. So for the people who are in New York on yeah, the 27th, we're having an opening night with Eve Ensler. I mean, her name is now V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, the person who invented the vagina monologues and has written so many books and done so much activism. Uh, particularly in Congo and in other places, uh, victims of war crimes, women and girls who are victims of war crimes. Um, she's going to be talking about future of female embodiment and what she's seen over her many years. And we have the curator of this exhibit who's going to be talking about um, how she pieced together all of these amazing visionaries and uh, some music and poetry. And you'll get a chance to see these works in person. And then Faye is going to be speaking uh, on the 27th also, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yes, in the morning. So um, please come and join us at Sensing Woman in Chelsea. And if you are far away, like many of you are, you can support the artist by purchasing work 
at sensingwoman.org, or you can come in and uh, participate in a simulcast. We're going to be simulcasting all these talks to all of y'all. Uh, so I know you're going to be there because you care very much about healthy, justice-oriented sovereignty for all beings, especially the girl kind. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Thank you, Christine. It was a really lovely conversation. I really loved it. Isn't it amazing to hear from artists? Thank you so much, Faye and Diana and all of the other artists who have contributed their work to the show. Thank you to Christina Massey of Woe Art, who has curated and brought these wonderful creators together and really made this thing happen on the art side. You can visit the show at sensingwoman.org and learn more, purchase works, buy a simulcast pass. If you are in New York, join us for one of our events. And you can find me, as always, at the.rose.woman on Instagram. I love comments. I love people talking about the programs. And if you learned anything, anything stuck with you, please come over. I also love reviews. That makes me happy. So participate in some way. It makes me feel less like I'm talking into the void when people make comments. And remember that every day is a chance to create. You are Venus Genetrix. You are the generative quality of the goddess of love. Everything is possible. Everything that is made has been brought forth through ideas, into the body, through the hands, with our tools to make amazing and beautiful things, whether it's a painting or a sculpture or raising a child or raising a garden or making a meal, whatever you're doing, making music, whatever you're doing, may your life force be used for creative love. All right, see you next time.